For more than two years, our federal government and the provincial governments in Ontario and Quebec have doled out billions of dollars to automakers so they would build electric vehicle manufacturing and battery plants and assembly plants right here in Canada. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke with two analysts who spent a year studying the electric vehicle supply chain about its economic impacts. The summary is they said it's going to take a lot more money and supportive policies from our government to take full advantage of the opportunities in building an electric vehicle supply chain in Canada. As always, interviews are edited for clarity and brevity. You know, I think by, tw- by the mid-2030s, the majority of vehicles on the road will be electric. You know, think about five years ago when you saw a Tesla, like, whoa, that's impressive. And now, oh, just another Tesla, right? That's Brendan Sweeney, Managing Director of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing, a think tank at Western University in London, Ontario. Last June, he started thinking about the EV transition and what it would mean for the Canadian economy. At that time, Ford Motor Company had already announced it would convert its assembly plant in Oakville to make electric vehicles. General Motors, Stellantis NV, and other car makers had also dropped hints about projects in the offing. But the truth is, tracking any economic trend is really difficult. And there was a lot of hype. So a lot of people in Canada, government and industry, have been talking about how big of an opportunity Canada has when it comes to electric vehicles. What we wanted to do was sort of ground truth this opportunity and commission some modeling to figure out just how how many jobs and, you know, what level of economic opportunity are we talking about when it comes to building our EV supply chain? So that's what we did. We, we commissioned some modeling from Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. That's Joanna Kiriazis, Transportation Program Manager for Clean Energy Canada, a think tank based at Simon Fraser University, which also worked on the study with Trillium, which basically models the economic impact of the EV transition if we add X number of plants or X number of manufacturing facilities. And we modeled this out and found that by 2030, a domestic EV supply chain in Canada could support a quarter of a million direct and indirect jobs and add about 50 billion per year to Canada's GDP. That's just based on North American electric vehicle demand. We didn't really look out to, you know, what happens if we start exporting to the EU or, or Japan. I'm pausing for a second because economists often shrug at any predictions that look too far into the future, say more than several months. No one has a crystal ball and technology and the economy are just too unpredictable. That said, these two think tanks modeled how many jobs would there be if we opened an assembly plant or we opened a mine, or we opened a battery cell manufacturing plant. Another reason to pause is that Canada already has an auto sector that has about 135,000 direct jobs in Canada, of which something around 124,000 are located in Ontario. This is data from the auto sector's main trade organization. So one basic question is how does an EV sector measure up against the current auto sector in terms of jobs? So in the transition to electric vehicle manufacturing, there is an impact on jobs. There are fewer jobs needed in actual EV assembly compared to the internal combustion engine. That's because EVs are simpler vehicles. They have many fewer parts. They don't have the complicated internal combustion engine itself. And so those Canadians who are building engines, they will be without a job in the future unless we focus on the reskilling and retraining and help transition them to be building electric motors or 
taking part at some other point in the electric vehicle supply chain, like battery cell manufacturing or battery component manufacturing, like cathodes and anodes and other really high value parts of an EV battery. That's why we think it's really important for Canada to be looking at the full EV battery supply chain and trying to capture jobs and economic opportunities all the way starting with you know, our critical mineral resources, the, the mining and the metals that go into the EVs, the battery materials that are processed and refined. Let's bring that over from China and, and situate it here in Canada. So we're adding that value here and capturing those jobs here. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. So assembling an EV may require fewer jobs. And then Curiazes started talking about China, which currently dominates the EV supply chain. It has more EVs on the road than any other country. And estimates vary, but somewhere around three quarters of all battery production occurs in China. In North America, the auto industry is all integrated. Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. in 2020 produced 13 million vehicles, which worked out to about 17% of the world total. Again, that's from the main industry trade group in Canada. Within Canada, autos are our second largest export. So it's not unusual for politicians to want to help the auto sector. But Curiazes said this is going to go beyond money. It's going to take responsive, well-crafted, smart policies at all levels of government. Our report is not focusing on the need to put tons more government money forward. We're thinking about other ways that Canada can set itself up to attract these investments and then scale up projects along the battery supply chain once we do land them. So we talk about the need to build a battery workforce. Workers are either in short supply or they're not at the right place at the right time. We need to make sure that they're trained and ready and relocated. We need to find ways to accelerate project development. And so one idea here is uh, industrial land is actually a big limiting factor, especially in Ontario. We don't have many large tracts of land left to host some of these industrial-sized projects. What Quebec has done is actually go out and identify a bunch of industrial land tracts in advance, set them up to be serviced and ready to go, and also selectively choose where they're located. So they're strategically located along logistics routes or near other similar uh, battery-related projects. You know, another key piece I've left out is engaging with Indigenous communities, consulting with them and working with them in advance. You know, where you're envisioning a battery supply chain project, <laughs> there are enough investments to go around I don't see preparing these tracts of land in advance and them not getting used. It's, it's the opposite. It's kind of like a weird version of if you build it, they will come. Instead, it's like if you zone it properly, someone will build there. This is pretty boring stuff like building service roads, rezoning land. So it's not just money, but clearly it is going to take even more money from the government to attract all these auto plants, battery plants, mines. Here's Sweeney again. To get that you know, 48 billion in GDP annually by 2030 to get those 250,000 jobs by 2030. We modeled out at least about another $12 billion in incentives for capital, for, for factories and mines. So in addition to that 12 billion, we're going to need public investments in infrastructure, both, you know, physical and in social infrastructure. Another 12 billion in capital costs, he said, and where will it come from? 
you know, all, all the money can't come from one province. Neither can all the money come from the federal government, nor can it come from one department uh, or agency within any of these governments. So there's got to be a lot of inter and intra government collaboration here. So this is a yeah, th- this is a lofty uh, this is a lofty and ambitious endeavor that we're proposing, but the payoffs are phenomenal. And you know, specifically, we've we've identified three places where these investments could go. One is EV assembly. Most of that will be reinvestment in existing facilities. So in our most ambitious scenario, by the early 2030s, all the existing assembly plants in Canada are making electric vehicles and they're operating at a reasonably high scale. Number two is battery cell manufacturing. This requires a small number of very, very big investments that are really only suitable to places like Windsor, or other large population centers in Ontario and Quebec uh, with manufacturing expertise. And then the third one, this is where we would really reconceive of what we do with our minerals and build something from scratch. And that's what we call the integrated battery materials industry. And it's a chance to kind of right the wrongs of Canada's past where you know we've fallen into this staples trap. We are, what we are not modeling or proposing here is that we take lithium or nickel out of the ground and ship it in its raw or minimally, minimally processed form to the United States or to, to Europe. So he's talking about selected investments with a big impact. What we have modeled out is what we call an integrated industry where we, those minerals in the ground, which belong to the citizenry, which belong to Canadians, should be mined and refined in Canada. And that's where, I mean, the economic benefits of doing that are in multiples or like sixfold. The question probably is whether our governments can do some of these things in time to get big investments from automakers. They need to make sure there's transmission lines to vacant industrial property, things that may not pay off immediately. I think the biggest risk has to do with speed. It's a growth industry. What sets leaders and laggards apart is how quickly we can go from putting the stake in the ground or the shovel in the ground and getting the first product off the line. And so whether it's how quickly we're getting funding out the door from our net zero accelerator fund, you know, to support some of these big battery projects, or how quickly can we get new mining or clean energy projects approved so that they can both start serving um, the EV battery supply chain. I think we've got to find a way to do things faster in Canada uh, if we want to compete. If you look at all other jurisdictions that are successfully competing on batteries, they all have a strategy. The EU has its strategic action plan on batteries, and it has set up a coalition, the EU Battery Alliance, that coordinates public and private efforts. They've been able to mobilize hundreds of billions of dollars and really catch up in developing a domestic EV battery supply chain over the last five years. Countries like Australia have a battery strategy. Sweden has a battery strategy. Even the U.S., you know, the home of the of the free market, has a national batteries blueprint that specifically identifies where the U.S. can win, what its key priorities are going to be, and key actions will be by you know the next five years, the next ten years. And a lot of that thinking was then translated into the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, 
right, which was riddled with a number of production and investment tax credits, loans, buying North American provisions uh, that support reshoring many parts of that EV battery supply chain and setting the U.S. up to, to win in EV manufacturing in the future. This is industrial policy from the government. And in some ways, people think it's the way the world works now because we're competing with China, which has central planning. We don't always have a lot of social cohesion in Canada around policies, as evidenced by the increasingly divisive nature of our politics. In that sense, the auto sector may be an important bellwether for how our economy will fare in the future. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. And thank you to my guests, Brendan Sweeney, Managing Director of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing, a think tank at Western University in London, Ontario, and Joanna Kiriazis, Transportation Program Manager for Clean Energy Canada a think tank based at Simon Fraser University. The original music on this show was composed and performed by Bryce Hall, who designed the logo and produced this episode. Pamela Heaven, Noella Ovid, and Victoria Wells provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return with more episodes next week. Until then, find your business news at financialpost.com.